I've been all around this this country uh, and uh, telephonically and also traveling wise over the last 12 years to document uh, not just the musicians, but also the people that were able to capture the recordings in real time and uh, make them even more magical and ambient and listenable. And um, get a chance today to speak to an engineer who's been doing that for a long time and a place that uh, still remains uh, quite a hotbed of musical activity. Um, uh, he's worked with a lot of luminary cats and a lot of unsung heroes as well. Rob Madsen, welcome to the Jake Feinberg show. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor, man. Um, you know, can you talk to me about, my brother is the editor of the Idaho press up in Boise. Uh, he moved up there a few years ago and I've gone up there a few times, um, I'm just curious about you could talk about some of like the oldest recording studio that you know of in and around uh, that state. Well, you know, uh, there was a uh, eight track studio in uh, in Boise uh, for many years called uh, Custom Recording and Sound. It was owned by Don Cedarstrom and um, he had a uh, eight track one inch, <laughs> I think, a Studer machine and yeah and which is you know the eight track uh one inch is uh is huge track width it's a really good sonic quality and so that was a, uh, a dinosaur but it was a beautiful big piece of machinery and he used to record uh pretty much everybody that was around here in the i think the 70s uh <clears throat> you know as soon as he got that machine i suppose but uh uh like gib hockstrasser and the kings of swing he could do he had a big studio over there and it was legit he could do a whole orchestra in there this so is unbelievable was, hold on first of all what was the name of the studio i believe it was custom recording and sound now you were were, were you were, were you born in idaho or, or 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 you just live there now I was born in Idaho Falls and grew up there and then moved to Boise to come to college and stayed for uh, a good a good long time. Oh my gosh. So what when did what were the so when you came to Boise when was the first time that you wound up in in that studio? Uh, <laughs> I never recorded in that studio. Um when I started my uh, uh, 8-track studio in probably 83, 84, I suppose. Wow, wow. Uh, yeah, we, we bought one of those Fostex 8-tracks, uh, which was 8-tracks uh, on quarter-inch tape. Uh, and uh, But it was kind of a you know a new technology, and it enabled people to sort of be able to afford to buy multi-track machines. And so I would um, buy tape from Don Cedarstrom. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was... Uh, uh, a good way he actually had a sort of a pipeline to be able to buy all the tape that you needed and then later on when i got a fostex 16 track it was half inch tape so definitely needed to be able to get you know half inch reels and that sort of thing so i was over in the studio a few times just to go buy tape but it was an impressive room uh, uh you know uh not and the guy the guy who got me i think mostly involved in wanting to do multi-track recording was stevie um, great songwriter and musician who lives in Boise. Wow, I'm not hit. Tell me about this guy. Well, Steve is a <laughs> he's a world class uh, uh, musician, singer, songwriter. Um, he's had cuts by the Carpenters um, and Art Garfunkel. Uh, had a record deal on Capitol Records in the '70s. 
just in the and he lives in Boise, uh, plays around here. Whoa. But he was one of the first people that I knew that had a multi-track recorder in his home, and that was a Fostex 8-track, probably 83, and he was doing high-quality recordings back then. So we went, well, I want to do that, you know? You know, it's really interesting because um, you sort of understand that, you know, in New York there was <clears> – <throat> you had so many different studios, you know, and even going back into the 60s, just – 50s doing jingles and suds and duds commercials and and you know car commercials then you might do a movie soundtrack and then at night i mean they'd let so many of the cats just play uh and and jam for free or there might be late night sessions i remember talking to steve cropper and you know after a lot of the um a lot of uh, Al Jackson's work with uh, Willie Mitchell uh, at night, he would go over to I records and, and late at night record, uh, do all those Al Green sessions. And, you know, I just wonder, I wonder about like, you know, as best you can, you know, like uh, talk a little bit about, because actually that scene was happening in every regional part of the country, just at a different level. I'm just wondering about like, um, if you could talk a little bit about like how like if people were coming was 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 the majority of the recording that you were doing and even cats like Eaton who preceded um was it generally local or were there cats coming from the other parts of the Pacific Northwest was it a hate was it sort of a uh a, a seeking out place because there wasn't a huge studio scene in Seattle or Portland and, uh, you know, just I'm curious about the history of that. Well, yeah, the, you know, as far as like uh, this area, uh, Idaho uh, has uh, for many years had a very vibrant uh, live music scene with a lot of, you know, great talent uh, from uh, all over the state, really, but a lot of it from southern uh, southwestern Idaho. And so when we uh, my partner and I uh, first bought that Fostex, I believe, in, in 84 we bought a carbon board some microphones we didn't know what we were doing and we just sort of set it up and said to all of our friends we'll we'll do recording for you 50 bucks a song uh you know from start to finish which was you know a heck of a deal so but again <laughs> wait hold on wait, they, they, so you were sort of like making sure that like your prices were much cheaper than the cat that you were talking about earlier so you could get some business is that right We'd, yeah, I guess you could say that, or you could say yeah. that uh, we, we just wanted to learn how to do this sure. and with our friends. And and so these were people that, you know, shoot, if I if I could justify it, I would have done it for free. You know, um, people that I really loved and, and loved their music. So that's how we learned how to do it, uh, you know, up to a certain level. And then uh, throughout the 80s, just sort of built that little home studio into something where we were working with a lot of local bands of all different kinds of country and rock, and, uh, jazz and acoustic music. And then uh, eventually we started getting uh, some people coming up from Austin, uh, Chris Wall, who was on Jerry Jeff Walker's label and uh, people coming from Montana, wow. uh, uh, Montana Rose band who did some great records in those times. And so it became uh, sort of a destination for people to come and, do recording yeah up until about uh well when i moved to nashville in 92 did you um in and around like the 70s late 70s sort of before you sort of became entrenched in the 
in the recording scene in Boise. I mean, were you experimenting with uh, with going and taping live concerts yourself? Um, well, actually, that's that's pretty interesting. My dad has been a songwriter, was a songwriter all of his life, not professionally. He was an architect professionally, but so um, he bought a, a TAC four track machine, I believe, probably 1973 or 74. So I sort of had access to a little multi-track, you know, reel to reel and was always interested in it. But then I went to college, uh, studied classical guitar, um, worked on that and joined a honky tonk band and sort of didn't really think much about recording for years until uh, those uh, it became possible to, to do that eight track recording with the, you know, the home technology in the early 80s. And that's sort of what kicked me into high gear on it. What you can you talk about? Um, your dad was a songwriter. I mean, he did it for fun, or was he? Did people actually pick up his tunes and, and perform them? Um, he uh, he always was uh, very serious about his writing, but he didn't have any illusions. You know, he would send them off to Nashville. You know, <laughs> do the demos on his on his four track, and and they were great. And so he would get. Um, he he used to brag that he had everybody's uh, signature on his wall because he would get these rejection letters. So he, <laughs> He had the yeah, signature of Ken Atkins and Dolly Parton and all the people who turned down his songs. And to him, that was a source of pride that, you know, uh, he just loved it. And, and uh, the band I'm in now, uh, we've, uh, on our new album, we've cut one of his songs that he wrote probably in 1967, a real Bakersfield, almost Buck Owens sounding thing that uh, called Lucky You, Lonely Me. And uh, before he passed in January, he was able to hear the cut. So that was a, a big deal for him. Wow, that is so beautiful. Man, I just had chills, man. That's so beautiful. Yeah. That you so it was it was important. I mean, for obvious reasons. But did you did you know he was was he very sick, or did it just sort of happen that you recorded the song and and then were able to get it to him before he passed? Well, uh, actually, no. He was in really good shape when we when we first started playing the song, and then when uh, Buddy, the leader of the band, um, is, he loved the song. He just likes that Bakersfield kind of feeling. He said, whoa, sure. what was that? He said, can I do that song? And I said, sure. And he said, I want to put it on the new record. So, uh, and Dad, uh, you know, he was uh, 94, I believe, and last year just started to have a decline. And so, but uh, he, uh, no, we, we didn't cut it because of any other reason, but he just really liked the I song. I did. No, the time, it was divine timing, though. The fact that he was <laughs> able to hear it's uh, so freaking beautiful man that, that that is really you know it's one of the beautiful sort of like the the cycles of life and the transcending yeah. of birth. i mean yeah. you sent you yeah. sent him off with that you know and it's and you couldn't yeah. have asked i mean for now was he somebody that before he got into a career as an architect was he somebody that would be out was he did he try his hand at being a musician in some way? You know, um, I think he was always uh, way interested in, in music, especially country music, as it was, uh, you know, in the 40s and uh, 50s. Right. And uh, he would, he had all the 45s. Uh, you know, I remember that looking through those 45s and just all the hit records. And, and he I think he learned from his uh, brother to play guitar at a real young age. Um, his brother was also a songwriter who had a couple of songs. Uh, what cut by Farron Young and Sonny James. And neither of them were professional songwriters, so to speak, but they just, back in those days, uh, you know, a big families came sort of, there was a, 
built-in band, you know, for the barn dance. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of what it was. They grew up, you know, playing um, playing together, him and his brother, and that's how he learned about music. But I, I don't believe that his uh, intention was ever really to be a professional musician. He uh, he went to, uh, you know, it was in the, in the Army, and when he got out, he got the VA uh, bill to go to uh, college and went studied architecture, and that was what he did. I dig. No, I just want to be clear. What was the Farron and Young connection? Uh, my dad's brother. Uh, yeah. Alan, yeah, he uh, he actually uh, was a good songwriter and he took some trips to Nashville and he actually met up with Farron Young. Who oh, my him. God. This is insane. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Farron, Farron, uh, Farron said, you need a co-writer on that song? <laughs> and he, he said, uh, which was, you know, pretty standard procedure. Yeah. Back in the days, and he said, "Well, sure, you're going to make the record." And he he put it on the record. It was on the B side uh, of uh, of one of Farron's big singles. Um, and uh, believe uh, I'm a little blurred this morning. I can't remember the name of either one of those songs. But if I do, I'll I'll bring it up. Well, I know, and I I need to know what those songs. So it was on the, it was on a forty. It came out on a forty five. Yeah, it was on the B side of a forty five. Yeah. Holy cow! And, and so so I mean, music ran in your really deeply in your family and then i mean would you say that where did you go to to college uh boise state beautiful i mean can you this is so freaking insane can you paint the picture of obviously i go there now and it's like it's like a very fascinating place because you know you go to portland and seattle and it's they've gotten very gentrified and there's also they've been overrun by just a lot of people that are kind of not in great shape in their lives and it's just gotten overrun uh those and then you go to boise and i mean i went to the tree fort music festival and within on sunday night after the festival within a few hours there wasn't a piece of trash on the street i mean it was as <laughs> clean as a whistle yet still tremendous amount of live music but very built up and very and you know obviously corporations have come in and put a lot of money into downtown please set the scene for my audience about the the clubs that were really happening uh in the 70s uh in in uh in in Boise yeah okay well um you know the, the late mid to late 70s uh you had uh Pengilly Saloon, which is which is well, that's probably still, still rocking, you know. Yeah, it's still rocking, and yeah. uh, I play there every Wednesday with the band that I'm in now. Are you and, kidding me? Are you kidding me? Oh, that's sick! No, no, no. I, now, when I come up on, in in uh, in over Christmas, I'm coming to hang. Yeah, well, check yeah. in with me. Make sure we do it month. I know, month. no, I will, I will, I will. Yeah, it's a great music bar. It's got music dripping from the walls, you know. So that place has been there since the mid '70s, I believe. And uh, let's see, there was the Bouquet. Uh, which was down on Main Street and over the years has, you know, had several iterations, but it's always, it was always a great music bar. Um, and uh, let's see, then there, there was like a, a circuit of uh, Sandpiper restaurants that always had, you know, uh, really good music, uh, a place called the Lock, Stock and Barrel, which uh, always had good music and is still having great music. Um, and uh Oh, Grandpa Myers. Uh, I think it was up on uh, Orchard or Emerald. I remember going and seeing uh, Muzzy Braun and his brother, just drums and guitar, no bass. Oh, my just, God, dude. Are you kidding it. me, dude? 
No, it was great. No, no bass, just drums and guitar and, and Muzzy sang and it had everybody on the dance floor dancing, probably 200 people, you know, in that place. And they didn't have to pay a bass player. It was great. But <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, that, that, that is so old school. I have uh, these dear friends of mine, the Matt, it's ironic because you have only one T in your name. Is that right? Madsen? That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's a band, I'll, you got I'll hip you to them. These twin brothers down in San Diego, uh, the Matson two, but they have two T's and it's a twin brothers and they play explosive. I mean, it's not, it's guitar drums and it's yeah. un freaking believable. I cannot, what was, who was Muzzy's brother? Uh, Gary. Um, there are three, uh, yeah, there are three of that generation, three brothers, Muzzy, Gary, and Billy. Oh my and, God. Uh, and the Muzzy's sons are the ones who uh, started uh, Reckless Kelly and Mickey and the Motor Cars, uh, which are both, uh, uh, you know, very well-known bands based out of Austin now. So uh, the bronze go back, you know, generations as far as music in this area and uh, really interesting family, wonderful people. Uh, but so, yeah, they had, I think they it, the three brothers had a, had the Braun brothers band, I believe, and then at some point it was just Muzzy and Gary, and they didn't you know they didn't see it any different. I suppose it would book the band, book a two piece, you know, and, and we'll keep people on the dance floor. We don't need a bass player, you know, for right now. <laughs> I I just cannot it, that would be just that, were they playing like was it like country rock? I mean, I, I you know the, the 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 twins I'm talking about are you know they're they're covering. They're 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 doing like a full their own version of you know John Coltrane's Love Supreme, so it's more has more of like a, it's fusing you know soul with jazz and that kind of stuff. But can you just talk about the kind of music that the not even in the duo but in the trio? I mean, where how would you describe that Mountain West sound? Uh, with Muzzy, uh, Muzzy sort of epitomized the uh, the Idaho swing um, sort mm. of it, just swing music, you know, great dance music. Uh, wonderful songs about the mountains and, and the people of Idaho, a uh, beautiful voice that he has. And uh, the three brothers, you know, the three harmonies uh, would just be, of course, as you can you, you can guess, sibling harmony. Um, just right. beautiful. And yeah, they were just great. And, and, and really, uh, you know, uh, they helped Muzzy and Gary help foster a, a bunch of uh, talented people who uh, played bass and steel and guitar, who would come along and play with them. So they were a big part of that 70s, a huge part of the 70s music scene uh, in Idaho, along with uh, bands like a band called Tarwater and Kendall Bennett, and, uh, you know, a bunch of them, and Steve Eaton, uh, John Steve Hanson. Eaton, wait, I'm sorry, what was the, what was the first band? Uh, let's see, uh, Tarwater. I, so what was that? I mean, you got to, this is so where the rubber meets the road for Jake Feinberg. I mean, this is like, what were these bands, what was that band about? The Tarwater was a force of nature. That was, I, I think they were a six-piece band. Oh my god! Uh, in, the, in the '70s, they were just better than anybody, and they were hard touring. That's what they call they called it hard country, um, and uh, hard country music like hard rock. But and they played country music like it was rock and roll. And this is unbelievable. This is, wait, hold on. You said there it was called Tidewater. Tarwater, yeah. T -A -R. Tar Tarwater. Uh huh. That oh one word. My. Oh, and so it was like, was there a horn section or what was the makeup of the band? Uh, it was uh, drums, bass, uh, a couple of guitars, fiddle and steel. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a full complement, you know, country band. But everybody in the band was uh, virtuosic. 
and could play really well and great songs that they wrote uh, that were just of that, you know, 70s uh, traditional country kind of thing. And, they, you know, uh, shuffles, swing tunes, waltzes, that sort of thing. But they were high power and they toured a lot. And, you know, they, along with several other bands in the Northwest, sort of set that 70s uh, uh, country rock scene in, in the Northwest uh, and just set the bar for everybody else since, really. Um, this is some of the most powerful uh, ethnomusicology around. I'm, I'm so honored to be able to connect with you, man. I mean, would, would you, you know, it's funny because this all started for me. Obviously, my brother moved up there, but um, I was, I live in Tucson. So I'm like digging through this record shop one day and I pull out and I have record. Unfortunately, it's at work right now, but um, I'm starting to look through the, these, these record bins and I pull out these Braun brother records from the early 1980s. And it's like, I'm like, who are these cats? Where did they, I mean, th this was like regional Idaho. And did you, were, can you talk about how your, I mean, obviously you were going to see them play. Did you wind up recording uh, anybody in the, in, in the Braun family uh, when you started to, even a little bit after the, when you became a little more polished and, you know, wasn't just like $50 sessions with friends. Did you start recording them at all? Yeah. And, uh, Muzzy and, uh, and his sons, uh, they, he had sort of like the Braun family and, uh, his four sons were, I think ages, you know, somewhere around six on up to 12. Uh, and so he would bring the whole family down from the mountains and, and uh, come to the studio. Sometimes they would stay with us. Sometimes they'd stay in a hotel. And we would re record an album with them. That was probably mid to late 80s. Um, and 87 ish, maybe something like that. And uh, so, the, but the, you know, the reason I was able to sort of get in with those guys is I met Muzzy through Pendo uh, Bennett, who was, uh, you know, the leader of the famous Motel Cowboys, which was the band that I was in at the time. And, what, what was uh, his what was his first name pinto pinto wow bennett b-e-n-n-e-t-t -N -N -E right okay so you were in the with the honky talk cowboys what was it called uh it was called well, at first it was the pinto bennett band and then eventually it morphed into uh what was called the famous motel cowboys the famous motel cowboys so that band uh you were in that in the mid, it was that you say that started in kind of like the mid '80s kind of thing, or you joined in the mid '80s? Yeah, I started playing with Pino, I believe, in 1980, and then uh, played with him up until about '91, mostly through that period of time. Uh, sometimes it was called the Pino Bennett Band. Sometimes it was Pino Bennett and the Republicans. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> it was, sometimes it was, uh, and then later on, it became the famous Motel Cowboys, who that that band toured uh, uh, overseas and uh, a good portion of the Western United States. You know. Uh, and then uh, Pinnell moved uh, back to Nashville in, I think, 91 or something like that. I moved back to Nashville or to Nashville in 92. So, you know, that band was, a, that stint with Pinnell was about a 10 or 11 year period of uh, uh, playing with him, which was great music, and then meeting people like Muzzy. And, uh, that's that's how I met pretty much everybody was through Pinnell. This is so beautiful. So how, how where did, did, uh, Pinto Pinto was was also from Idaho that 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 region. Yep, yep, from Mountain Home, Idaho, where there's just they must have something in the water, you know. 
There's just a lot of Wait, talent wow. with him. So, so they, so him and Muzzy, did they go back way back to like almost childhood, or how long have they known each other? I would imagine they were playing the same circuits, uh, early seventies. Um, Holy yeah, cow! Early, early to mid seventies, yeah. Uh, Muzzy's uh, originally from Twin Falls. His family's from Twin Falls, and uh, Benno's from Mountain Home. Those two towns are probably an hour apart. You know, so they would run into each other, I'm sure. But they already were old friends by the time I met both of them. This is fantastic stuff. So a couple things. Um, were you playing in 1980? Actually, did you t- what, when you say the circuit, I'm fascinated because my favorite bands, you know, I mean, they do Berkeley, Eugene, Portland maybe Spokane, Seattle, they just hug the coast. Um, and I'm so fascinated now with this Mountain West region, you know, essentially Utah, Idaho, Montana. But I, I mean, I'm curious, like if you, I mean, if, when you guys would tour, uh, what, what was that, that circuit? What, where, where were the, where were the States and what were the clubs? Uh, you know, as far as like, uh, Oregon, we, we, we would get over to band, um, Beautiful. Beautiful. I mean, yeah. at that time, it's so. I mean, I cannot even imagine Bend in like '82, '83. It was different, yeah. <laughs> it, it was different. Back then. It was an overgrown cow town back then. Oh you know, man! It's a resort, but uh, it's still yeah. beautiful. But you know, uh, uh, Bend, and then uh, all over, literally all over Idaho, and you know, every uh, crevice of Idaho, and uh, and then um, uh, Wyoming, Jackson Hole, the Cowboy Bar, and and, uh, and Jackson Hole, uh, get over to Cheyenne and uh, um, and uh, Cody, pretty much all over Wyoming, up to uh, Missoula and uh, Kalispell, Montana. This is uh, unbelievable, man. Down to uh, Colorado Springs and, you know, down that area. We would just sort of try to book it so it made sense. We didn't have an agent, but we were we were booking it so it would, uh, you know, you know a lot of the places were actually paying pretty well back then. The, the, the Cowboy Bar in Jackson was a was a real good paying gig with with rooms and meals and ski tickets and the whole deal. And you know, so the resorts were doing really well back then, so they were paying for good music. Dude, I am loving this. First of all, you're the Cowboy Bar, dude. That's what I was just going to ask you. I want let's be very clear about this because at 45 and the friends that I support, my heroes, my peers who are on the road. Road dogging it. Um, you don't make money anymore at the gigs. You're lucky if you have enough room in your because it's since coming out of the <laughs> pandemic with inflation, you can't really rent a bus anymore with gas prices so high. So you have to take a sprinter van. You can't really put a lot of merchandise in there. The difference then back in the even in that 80s time. How much you telling me the bread was pretty good for the gigs? Uh, yeah, I mean, adjusted for inflation, it was better. <laughs> Absolutely, but, no, no. I mean, the lat. I mean, it's fair to say there's there are there are great articles out there that live uh, live musicians have not seen a cost of living increase since around 1984, which is insane. I think you know, that's I mean, probably about right. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, uh, with that, I think they try to make up for it in other ways. Like when I was playing in bands in the 80s, uh, you would never see a tip jar on stage. Uh, exactly. Just, there you go. Go ahead. Continue. Yeah. So, yeah. So now there's a tip jar on stage and, uh, 
you know, with the band that I'm in, and it's just wonderful. I mean, people are, are sort of, they understand and they come to the gig, no cover charge. So they, they come up, put a five or 10 in the, in the, in the tip jar. And at the end of the night, we might walk out with, you know, sometimes as much as uh 50 or $60 a piece in tips. Right. Which right. Is, right. Which is helpful, you know, and, but there was a guaranteed, I mean, let's just be very clear. I mean, the cowboy bar at a place like Jackson hole, which is now, I mean, it's just so, it's just so high end back then you had a room meal and you'd get for that time, good money for, for the gigs. I mean, you could walk away and and bring back and pay the bills and support your family. Yeah, you could back. I mean, if it was all that, you could do that. It, it wasn't, but there were places like, uh, like Jackson hole, Cheyenne, uh, steamboat and, you know, uh, resort areas that right. could sort of afford to pay for good music and, and they wanted good music. There were some big places in Utah, you know, uh, Park City and and uh, up at the the big mountain up at Kalispell. They would pay real decent money for for the bands uh, competing for the good bands, you know, back in those days. And, yeah, it was pretty good. You know, when when uh, what was the name of your studio, by the way, uh, in the in the eighties in, in in Idaho? It was called Horizon Recording. When, when Muzzy came down, I just, I'm curious so much of like, I'm going to talk and do my second interview with a guy you probably cross paths with in Nashville, Norbert Putnam. Um, the yeah, baby, yeah. And, and my hero, one of my dear, a dear friend, I talk to him all the time and um, he's such a great cat. And, you know, there, there were certain, there wasn't um, uh, really at the, at the higher levels like in LA and places like that, I mean, there really wasn't a template for how to record a studio album until about 1976. Before that, I mean, whether it was Bones Howe or, you know, Bruce Botnick or, you know, any of the great New York, I mean, they, they did it their own way. were able to get, generate a really beautiful sound. Um, sometimes having everybody hit at the same time, very minimal overdubbing. I'm just curious, like when, like in that specific situation, he drives down from the mountains with his with his family. They stay the night. Like, was there a lot of in today's world? In today's world, with all this technology, there's just a perseveration about post production. Where it seems to me that, and I remember this from John Simon, the the band's uh, uh, producer on those the Brown album and stuff like that. I mean. It was all in pre-production and they would cut the tunes and really just let it, let it, you know, germinate. And I wonder about that process, especially with an old school musician like Muzzy, like, was it more pre-production than post-production at that time? I mean, how, how much, just paint the picture about how that was, you know, how loose that recording session was. Well, like I say, we were, we were all just learning at that point in time and still are. But yeah. but back in those days, I think we wanted to do records like we thought the Eagles made records or, right. uh, you know, uh, uh, some of our favorite bands. And, and so we would get, you know, a Muzzy would uh, hire a, a drummer and a bass player. We used to people that he knew and had played with him. And, uh, you know, we would sit down and start with a rhythm track, drums, bass, maybe acoustic guitar, and then start building it that way with overdubs, you know, uh, and then start putting on the, the, the kids vocals and working on their harmony parts. And uh, and then later on uh, mixing, you know, um, but that's uh, 
the thing I really like, one of the things about Nashville recording is they really still do it old school. They do, there's not a lot of pre-production. There's usually a demo that the, uh, the artist or the songwriter will bring in and uh, whoever's, you know, whichever session cat is leader of the, of the band for that day will do charts and, and they'll sit, they'll look at that chart, listen to the song once, sit down and play it. And uh, in, in all likelihood, get it on the first take. Sure, uh, sure. Just incredible musicians in Nashville. And they do it, you know, as, as a live band. So everybody's playing off everybody. They've been doing it for years. I want to be very clear. You're telling me, you're telling me that still, still in, in Nashville, uh, you rent the studio and you got a full band hitting live, everyone together at the same time. There is still a lot of that, yeah. Wow, and that's really nice to hear. Oh, it's 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 a great thing that you know those musicians there are like Olympic athletes. They're just they're just so great, and they and they really love that um, that camaraderie of getting together five, six, seven pieces and and uh, walking in not knowing what they're going to cut, hearing the song for the first time, looking at a chart, sit down and play off each other. That's just a a Nashville thing that's been going on forever and still does to a great degree. Yeah, I mean, I mean, with like, so I mean, Muzzy's tracks were kind of built tracks a little bit, right? I mean, they you 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 had him sing vocals with the just the, sort of the basic trio, and then how would you? And I'm curious, like, at that time, you know, today I, I have a really hard time with uh, modern recording techniques, just because there's so much technology available, which doesn't mean you have to use it but people feel obligated to use it. So they mic every part of the drum kit. I mean, I'm a huge leakage fan, you know, not, not to the point where it <laughs> ruins something, but I mean, my favorite albums are just, there's this natural leakage and it's just so beautiful because like, it was like a Glenn Johns kind of thing. He'd have one, yeah, or Tom you know, Dowd, you know, you know uh, I mean, what was, what's the Rob Madsen, especially at that time. Yeah. You were learning clearly you weren't a, a gray beard in the engineering side of things, but, what was your favorite way to mic the drums at that time? Well, yeah, I, I succumbed to the uh, mic every drum. Syndrome. You succumbed to that. I, well, how I did that? Tell me See, why. Tell me why, in your mind. I mean, is that you're having to bend towards what the artist thinks that it feels? Because to me, it, it you're you're it's too much compression. But explain your evolution with the micing. Well, I, I remember uh, being aware of the. Um, shift in what I can perceive to be audio quality uh, as a listener before I ever got involved in uh, in recording somewhere around the late 70s when you would you we would start to hear uh, like the, the albums being real crisp and clean and you could hear right, right. Be, you know well I'd like say the Steely Dan you know um, those sure. are those, you know those are just everything's so crisp and clean and obviously close mic'd and uh, so you know, sort of, I enjoyed that, had good speakers and would, you know, sort of, I think that's what got me, you know, um, interested in recording too. And then that's just what you did, you know, at that point in time. I didn't, hadn't studied uh, people like Tom Dowd and Glenn Johns and their miking techniques. And I love it. And I, you know, to this day, I, I, I think so many of those old records sound better than what we're making today. So uh, let me ask you something. Okay. So I love the way you just said that. Uh, what is the, is it because there's too much, 
why why not try and and if it because they do i mean it's so obvious it's <laughs> it feels so it you know what it is it does it's not even the sound it feels good it feels yeah. really good and so like yeah. why not like take a page out of that book is there just too much peer pressure to conform to the modern era i don't I, i'm just fascinated by that well i do believe that's a good good word to use peer pressure is um you know we uh we sort of do uh, you know my career in nashville for i guess 27 years was was a a, a large portion of it spent um doing really good songwriter demos uh that were so supposed to sound like records so that the songwriter could pitch the song I dig. And using the same players and the same uh they, they were playing on records and you know uh just really good techniques, uh, recording techniques and all that. And so, but it was to be done very quickly. And, uh, and at some point along the line, the criteria for what a great sounding mix be was became about volume. Um, you mm -hmm. know, and so it's like, it didn't, you know, um, you, you take your demo into somebody and go, well, how loud is it? You know, is it loud enough? <laughs> and oh, yeah. It became that for a long period of time. Uh, you do. You succumb to those things because you've got a clientele and you're trying to keep up to uh, to, to what you figure the bar is. And to be honest, you know, I mean, my 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 likes and dislikes don't didn't enter into it at that point. It was how can you uh, how can I sort of try to compete with this other uh, studio that's doing great work, uh, making great demos, and you're always trying to trying to keep your clientele and they're always trying to make an impact with their songs. So, you know, when you're in it for, to make a living um, and you're in a situation like, like a town like Nashville, where there's a lot of competition, you, I think you do what you have to do uh, to, uh, to sort of like keep your clients happy, keep them getting cuts, you know, keep them getting uh, hit songs. And, you know, I, I think it's really well articulated. I just wonder, like, obviously you were, you know, in a man management position, but were there some artists that you would pull their te their coat to being like, hey, you know, like, here's the thing, like, loud is okay, but if it's only loud and there's no dynamics, yeah. that's a big problem. I mean, were you, were there any artists that you were able to say, hey, listen, um, just the way your vocal style is and the, and the way you want to present this song, you know, we don't need to turn it up to 10. I, I mean, yeah. was were you able to sort of integrate was there an example you can use where you you were to get your own ethos and and sort of essence into a recording session instead of saying well i gotta sing for my supper and i i gotta stay up with what's what's current yeah i think there were you know some uh records that i've done over the years that neither i nor the artist felt like it needed to be slammed yeah you know and and, and i always really enjoy that sort of thing and uh, there's an album I'm working on right now that I feel the same way about. It's a it's a local outfit called Rancho Notorious, and um, I finished the mixes uh, last night. And uh, in the in the back of my head, I've just been trying to resist that uh, temptation to brick wallet and, and uh, sort of let it be, you know, the, the dynamics that it wants to be. I think it always try to do that, you know. Uh, what do you then, mean? Well, explain to a layperson like me what brick wallet. What does that mean? Well, you can, uh, you know, the only way to get things loud is to is to push them up against a brick wall limiter, and and there are other tricks too. But um, one of those things is, uh, and it does sort of tend to take the dynamics out, takes the impact of the drums out. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a constant battle of trying to keep things uh, up to 
um, you know, a certain what what's perceived as sonic quality or yep, you're nailing it. And uh, and then against what you what you uh, would really like to hear. You know? I love this. I did, honestly, I, I, you're you're just so you're articulating this so well. Um, it, it was that that push towards sonic frequency expansion due in large part to like the guitar ear guitar hero movement of the of this country i mean i'm just trying to figure out when i mean first of all jazz was like the popular music in this country so you listen to philly joe jones or any of those cats mickey roker pete laroque all those drummers they were not keeping time on the bass drum they were there was so much feathering of the bass drum there was so much use of the cymbals it, yeah. it there was an ethereal quality i mean and yet i'm like that's my favorite stuff. And, and it's not popular music anymore. And and like you said, everybody wants to just jam it up. Hyper compression. I guess they think it's mod. And it is mod. But yet, it, it just, it, it, there's a sterility to it. I mean, when did you first see, um, you know, sort of that, was it in the late 80s uh, or even earlier when you started to see this, not just the, the the crystal clear quality but also just this this incessant need to blast people out of the room well uh, you know i believe it started with uh, with the uh the ability to record digitally um yes and, uh, and because you could actually have tools that would uh look ahead and stop transients and and uh so that you could actually, people would use compressors uh, to sort of beef up and pump up a sound when when you were when you were mixing for vinyl, you know, uh, and up till about the you know the well I guess eighty six or eighty seven when you could start to mix uh, to dat tape, and then um, I think that's probably when it started, and then uh, gradually, but by by ninety five or ninety six it was in full force, and you had all kinds of tools like. There was a there was a rack piece of rack gear uh, when people were still mixing uh, outside of Pro Tools. There was a rack piece called the Finalizer that you could run your mix through, and uh, and it would have a, a zero stop um, uh, function where you could you know mix right up against it, and it wouldn't go over you know zero. Mm. Which in digital land you don't want to go over zero because it's mm. not pretty like it like it can be with a, you know with analog tape. So. I, I it just became somehow weirdly important, you know. <laughs> sure, that, uh, sure. Not, you know. No, I dig. Weird. I dig. Were were you were you able to uh, cross paths with? Um, pretty sure that these cats are still. I'm going to mention a few cats in Nashville. Um, Wayne Moss, um, uh, Lloyd Green, and also. Uh, 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 Matt Gaden, were they still active in the studios? Did you work with those cats? Well, I met Wayne Moss one time. It was a thrill for me, and, and uh, just knowing his. Uh, oh his my history. God, dude. area yeah. code six, area code six one five. That's a great record. Do you have that record? Yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. And and just all the the, the stuff that he played on, you know, uh, oh like Mr. Robin. Uh, you know, it's just incredible his his uh, discography. He's so highly respected, and he was actually he, as a guest came came uh, to uh, uh, an artist I was working with. He came to a session and just sort of sat there like like uh, very gracious and and just uh, 
totally unaffected. It was, it was a thrill for me to meet him and got a signed copy of his book. And so that was great. That's, you know, one of the wonderful things. I've worked with Lloyd Green on a session, one session, one time, which was just, again, a thrill for me. <laughs> uh, I can't believe and, these guys are still cooking away. man. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable, man. Yeah, Lloyd Green is, a, he's just a, he's just completely valid, you know, still. Oh my God. Uh, and he's a, you know, played on so many great, great records uh, going clear back into the 60s, you know. Oh, my uh, God. Well, the other, the other uh, Weldon Myrick and then the other cat who is uh, my dear friend in my heart, rest in peace, who I had a chance to uh, uh, do an incredible video interview with him at the National Musicians Union was uh, Kenny Malone. Did you ever work with Kenny? Oh. I did, yeah. I yeah. love Kenny Malone, man. He would bring a uh, just a beautiful spirit to every session, and I love him, man. You know, the funny thing about him is that Kenny would not really. Uh, he would take a, a copy of the chart, you know, because uh, because it was there, but he would rather have a lyric. <laughs> I knew it, dude. Exactly, playing <laughs> to the singer. Yeah. That's what he would like to do. And he was such a great field player and so highly loved by all the session musicians. And, you know, I, I probably maybe over the course of those years did maybe 10, 12 sessions with him. I always looked forward to it. Um, you so know, freaking so beautiful, beautiful, man. I mean, because yeah. that dude, that dude was like the big band leader in the in the maritime in the U.S. Navy band. I remember Denny Sywell from Wings walked what? by one day like it, he's like hearing all this guy playing six mallets uh, he looks in and he's there's kenny malone he's like dude i thought you were a drummer he's like yeah but i'm my, my major is percussion he always had those crazy like i mean dude i'll send you this video man it will bring you to tears i mean the guy's playing all sorts of all sorts of weird percussion i you know it's it's <laughs> i have to before it leaps out of my my memory um you know it's so interesting that um when i was at tree fort my friends mapache were playing in the in the park uh and there was the gene harris band shell did you know gene ever i never did but i was uh going to boise state when um when he was uh you know playing the gamekeeper all the time here in town the gamekeeper the gamekeeper yeah. oh was that a was that like a strictly a jazz club uh no i think they would have different kinds of music i i didn't really go there often, but uh, wow. but uh, my friend Terry Eberline played piano, beautiful piano in the lobby there for years, and then and then uh, Gene Harris I think would play there, but he was uh, such he did so much for the for the local you know uh, community and especially for the university. Uh, he was just some someone that uh, really cared about education and and furthering uh, music for everybody. Were you hip to the? Have you gotten over time hip to the? His uh, band, The Three Sounds. No. Uh -uh. Yeah, so that's like Andy Simpkins and him, and then he had different iterations of it. But that dude was the funkiest player ever, man. <laughs> I mean, it was definitely like <laughs> he got in by the by the eighties, and it's just I can't believe he like lived there. And I'm like looking at this band shell, the Gene Harris band shell in Boise, Idaho. I'm like, this is this is America right here, man. This is the greatest <laughs> thing in the world, man. Yeah, that would be America, for sure. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, the guy that connected us. We're going to have to do set two because we just burned through 50 minutes here. Um, the guy, <laughs> Jake DeJong, um, can you talk about that cat? He's the one that, you know, basically put us together and said, this is the guy, man. He's done a number of different sessions. And uh, 
and uh, you know, clearly he was right. Yeah, Jake is great. Um, I've had the chance to uh, see him play a lot in the last couple of years um, with uh, mostly with uh, our, our mutual friend Casey Sheldon, and uh, and Jake is really talented. He's like uh, he's like a really super talented musician and has a new album out that's really good. And uh, he could play, you know, all kinds of instruments, guitar and steel. I think steel is what he's mainly working on now, and which is uh, which is a rabbit hole that he's willing to go down. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> is, is, dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know. So he's a great musician and a, and a really, really good guy. I feel like you guys should just get out busking on the street playing duo or something, you know? Just... <laughs> I know you're probably – do you feel like uh, – it seems to me like uh... – I go to Chandler's Steakhouse. There's this badass upright bass player. His name, first name is Wade. I can't remember his last name. Such as was in Motown, late seventies cat in uh, up in Boise. But I just feel like going to uh, Penn Gillies um, and just going to that festival. Um, no place is perfect. They got the uh, Neuralux there, and they got um, a lot of. In fact, the Matson Two is coming the Neuralux and I'll tell you I'll send you the date those are the twins okay, I was yeah. talking about you got to go check them out um sure. but do you feel like how important do you, in this time with all this dissonance and sort of cognitive dissonance and uh mania that's running through the veins of the world how important is is live music to to your not just to your area but to to people right now well personally it's my salvation you know I mean uh, and, and I just, you know, feel lucky to still be playing after all these years and, and to still be doing. I think for everybody, it's a, it's just the most uh, probably healing thing. You know, you can go listen to your favorite bands with, you know, with with somebody down the street and and have a great time, even though you may get on Facebook and hurl insults at each other. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I think that's, uh, you know, if, if if we can somehow keep our friendships at that level i think that's that's a great thing but you know the the music scene in idaho is is remarkable and, and just feel lucky to be in a place where it's prized and um and uh, and there's so, so much great talent rob let's uh let's try to do set two next week man i really feel so i mean as i continue to get deeper and deeper into that that regional area um it's just you know i've burrowed in uh, to all the different scenes in New York and LA and, uh, you know, Miami, which gets overlooked Atlanta. Um, and just, you know, to be up there, uh, it's just a lot of, you've done a lot of great work and, uh, you know, we should definitely pick it up and do set too. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, uh, let me know what works for you and we'll figure something out. Thank you, my brother. You have a beautiful week, man. And, uh, keep swinging, baby. Thanks so much, Jake. Talk to you later. All right. Talk to you later, Rob. Bye-bye.